This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Maria Tatar. She is John L. Loeb Professor of Germanic Languages and Literatures at Harvard University. I spoke with her on February 14, 2013, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in a studio at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Download the MP3 of that produced show with Maria Tatar at onbeing.org. Um, oh, I'm just, I, well, there's so many things I want to start talking about, but I think I'll, I'll tell you that oh, well, I, tell me about uh, you. Let me, yeah. I, I will tell Let's you that what... one thing that, that actually flows into this that I don't, you know, I don't have any need to talk about in the interview is that I, I spent almost 10 years in Germany, um, in my twenties oh, right? in the 1980s. So, um, so I've read those, those German fairy tales in German and, uh, also just have my own personal experience of that culture and you know some of the 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 drama the dramatic extremes that uh that that also come through in those stories in a way so that so there's a there's a that's that's one of my access points to 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 what you're describing and uh, how interesting yeah and did you learn german while you were there you know i had a really interesting way into that i uh I, I grew up without any German connection or, or learning languages, but then I went to Brown in the early, in the early 80s. Brown had created this exchange program with East Germany. There was nothing else like it. It was completely bizarre. And um, I remember. Do you that. remember that? Yes. And you know, yeah. it was just incredible. Yeah. And so I was one of the it, first uh, semesters of kids who went. And at that point, it wasn't even very organized. And it was really like landing on Mars. I mean, for for us and for um, them. So yeah, we weren't in I East can... Berlin. We were in uh, Rostock on the Baltic. Rostock, right? And oh these were people who had never imagined that they would an, even yeah, meet an American. Yeah. And right, my right, German, right. you know, I'd been studying it a couple of years. My grammar was good. I'd done the Goethe Institute, but it was the perfect immersion experience. You know, so that I, I had no choice. I was not with anyone um, who spoke but to English. Speak German. Yeah, right. So right, within right. three months, I mean, I. I still remember the one morning I woke up and I was dreaming in German. <laughs> so in that sense, it was great. But it really did also take me inside, oh, you know, the tortured psyche of that time, of the, that division. Yes, right. right, right, right. That, that, my most vivid memory of the East is going to East Berlin. And I was studying in um, at the University of Berlin at the time. Mm. And if maxis were in fashion, that is long, long skirts. <laughs> right. And I remember walking by this cafe and everybody there started laughing at me. <laughs> like I was like, who is this creature and what is she, what does she think she's wearing? You know? <laughs> so they, you know, they didn't find it attractive or glamorous or anything Or interesting like that, that you were cool, breaking out of the mold. Or cool at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just uh, some moron yeah. <laughs> who had wandered in from the West. <laughs> and so when was that? Would it, that have been 70s? Oh, when well, were Maxis that in? Was, I can't uh, yeah, it was uh, 1970. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I hadn't heard that term in a long time. How are we, how we doing, guys? Okay, let's go. We can do this. Let's talk about the real stuff, now, although Maxis are important. Okay. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, whoever I'm talking with, whatever subject, I actually always start with this question about whether there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. Oh, gosh, I did. Uh, I, I was going to say I had a secular childhood, but mm-hmm. I was uh, sort of obliged to go to Sunday services, every, you know, with my family. Mm-hmm. And I remember that as utter torture, <laughs> sitting through a sermon. And maybe that explains why I was attracted to fairy tales, <laughs> because of the excitement and the thrill. And, you know, they never um, they never turned you into the bored child. Huh. Uh, but there was something spiritual about it in that uh, my sister and I read the stories in a book called Die schönsten Kindermärchen der Brüder Grimm, mm. uh, the most beautiful fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. She was a little older. She read me the stories. Uh, I didn't know German. Uh, she didn't know German either. But but this book had these gorgeous illustrations, which just drew us into the stories. Mm. And 
you know, inspired her to, and, you know, one picks up bits and pieces of, everybody knows Little Red Riding Hood. So I just remember looking at those illustrations uh, and falling in love with them and, you know, entering the story through those vibrant colors in the illustrations. Mm. The artist wasn't particularly distinguished. It wasn't Arthur Rackham who gave us those gorgeous gnarly trees and uh, <laughs> uh, whimsical trolls and, and beautiful princesses. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, mm. the, I can still see those images in my mind's eye. Um, and... It, it also sounds to me from your background, from your where, who your family was and where they came from, that that uh, fairy tales were part of your childhood, and also you had this personal connection to the kind of dramatic and menacing tone that's in some of those fairy tales. I mean that you that you uh, you wrote somewhere that Europe is a, was a place for you that signified deep horror. Oh, absolutely. And I read the Diary of Anne Frank as a, a child, and I remember having having nightmares about being separated from my family. When we came to the U.S., we received these, these little cards that uh, designated us as alien residents. Yes. <laughs> and, and there was a little note on there that if we, if we changed our address, we had to notify the Immigration Bureau. And if we did not, we would be subject to imprisonment. And so for, for me, I don't know why I didn't ask my parents about this, but, uh, you know, I found that I, w- I was always worried that something, if we moved, uh, we might be deported or something like that. So, yeah, I think there was a need to connect with the European tradition to figure out why, you know, what I went into German studies, I think, in large part because I wanted to figure out how this country that was so civilized and that had produced such extraordinary art Mm -hmm. and philosophy and literature could have descended into this vortex of madness, of utter madness and horror. And uh, and I was, you know, led to the 20th century. But then later in my career, I went back to the Grimm's. Right, right. And that 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 uh, that merger, that mingling of kind of operatic beauty. I think that's a phrase you've used, and kind of monstrous terror. It, 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 that 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 combination, that juxtaposition, is such a such an enduring quality of these stories. Uh, that collision always right. makes a direct visceral hit, and and you get both in the story, and yet also the promise of a happily ever after. Right. That is, no matter how horrible that monster is, how frightening, uh, the hero survives. The hero will battle that monster, figure out a way to outwit it, uh, to get behind it and push it into the oven rather than being devoured. So the fact that there is a way out, I think, is, you know, one of the great strengths of these fairy tales and a reason why we can also read them to children or tell them to children without, you know, worrying, having deep anxieties about how it will damage them in one way or another. You know, one of the things, though, that I feel you've been very important in bringing out for people and tell it, is telling the story of the Brothers Grimm. And I mean, you you initially became a scholar of this these this kind of these kinds of stories, but and and they were scholars. You know, there's an anecdote in one of your books where you you talk about William Grimm remembering his father, who's one of the brothers, and saying silence was their real element and describing that all the only sound he associated with with the scratching of their pens and Jacob's little coughs. Oh. Um, so so t- tell a little bit of, of that story of what, what they felt they were doing and what they were working with originally, which is a little bit different from what has come down to us. Oh, well, you've, you've flagged an extraordinary point because, you know, they're growing up in silence and yet they're connecting with an oral story. Yes, yes. <laughs> with these vibrant scenes around the fireside where yeah. people are, you know, gossiping, uh, exchanging stories. Scaring uh, each other. <laughs> scaring each other. You know, yeah. there's no television, no electronic entertainment. So what are you going to do? But. Yeah. 
you know, create stories that are as melodramatic as possible, that have the highs and lows and everything in between. So they are these brothers, and they, they in their 20s, they decided to undertake this great scholarly project of collecting folklore, the voice of the people, uh, folks' poesy, but also... Uh, tales that have deep roots in, and this is where, you know, one starts to worry about the connection with uh, fascism. Mm -hmm. They're stories that have deep roots in the soil, in the culture. They run in the bloodstream of the of the folk. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that, you know, the Grimm's themselves were quite cosmopolitan. And I think what they wanted to do was collect these stories before they disappeared. Yes, there was sort of an effort to consolidate national identity and all of that. But they recognized that these were these stories went way back. They were mythical. They were powerful. They were changing over time. And they wanted to capture how these stories were being told in their own day and age. So what did they do? They wrote to other scholars, writers, and... And then they listened. They listened to the stories in their own milieu, uh, not necessarily going to farmhouses and seeking out peasants, but getting the stories, grabbing them from wherever they found them, uh, putting them into this volume, and discovering that uh, the the they were actually selling copies of this book, that parents were reading the stories to children. And that wasn't necessarily something uh, they had foreseen would happen, is it? It, it was not part of their, their plan. Right, and I, right. I think they were quite thrilled by it uh -huh. uh, because anything they had written before sold in the double digits. Uh, <laughs> you know, usually uh, they, they would sell 30 copies of, of some of their philological works. And so... So they, and they also res were responding as they went through successive editions, editing the tales, responding to reviewers, some of whom worried about the sexual illusions in the tales. Right. These were, after all, they were adult entertainment, and uh, and and the vulgar, coarse language, the scatological humor in the tales as well. So they started editing out, making the tales a little bit more child friendly taking out the story of Hans Dumm, who makes girls pregnant by, by just looking at them. And, uh, <laughs> Although I would imagine that might be one a lot of parents would like to tell their teenagers and have them believe. <laughs> Watch. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, the one, you, you give the example that in the original Rapunzel, in a lot of those stories, the prince climbs up her hair every day and, and they have sex and she gets pregnant, right? I mean, that's not really how that comes down to us. Yes, and then in later versions, the birth of the, of the the two children is never connected with the prince. Right, She's just right, magically, right. magically pregnant. Uh -huh. and, um, yeah. um, and then also another thing you talked about that changed is that uh, mothers are really problematic characters in these stories and that mothers often became stepmothers, um, that there was a move away from letting mothers be wicked, suspect characters. That's right. Uh, Somehow, I think that Grimm's wanted to preserve the sanctity of, of motherhood, of biological motherhood. Uh, so they, they changed mothers uh, to stepmothers in many cases. But they also, uh, they did include a story that is called Thousand Furs or All Furs, in which you have a father who is not a stepfather, but a biological father, who, instead of loving his his daughter too little, as the stepmother in Cinderella mm -hmm. does, uh, he loves his daughter too much, and he wants to marry her. She has to flee. Uh, so that that story is, I think we are we have sort of let go of many of the stories about cruel fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, Fathers who pursue their daughters I mean, for obvious reasons. We, you know, it. No, I don't think anyone would feel comfortable telling that story to a small child. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are also all these stories about three sons in the Grimm's collection, and they haven't become part of that canon of a dozen or so stories, which are just ritually reinvented and recycled. And there, often you do have a father who. You know, just sends his sons out into the world. He's tired of them, and he he 
sends them out on a, a mission to make their uh, make their own uh, paths in the world, and and they then go out into the world often as rivals and make their way back. Hmm. <clears throat> you know, you um, I, I I know that some people across history have spoken of this canon of fairy tales of stories um, as being akin to sacred cultural treasure or sacred canon. And I, I sense that you, for you, there's a really clear distinction between these two kinds of canons that that both have important places in Western culture. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm deeply interested in the idea of looking at the evolution of the tales. How have they migrated into other cultures? What happens to a grim tale when it ends up in the U.S. Right. or in China? How is it reimagined? Re- you know, sometimes it's just translated and l- quite literally. But but you then discover that illustrations tell a different story. So all those cultural inflections are just fascinating to me. But they aren't. You know, there is no original Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. And that's we the difference you're saying between a, a sacred story. Uh, that, well, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think these are, not, these are not stories that are mythological. Mm-hmm. They aren't part of a religious cult or anything like that. Uh, some folklorists and mythographers think that, it, you know, embrace the trickle-down theory, that these are domesticated myths. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really see them as part of the great cauldron of story where you've got myths and legends and folk tales and so I, I'm always troubled by the generic distinctions. I mean, mm-hmm. do we really have to put every narrative into a box? Right, right. Can't we just see them as part of a whole storytelling, a web of storytelling, uh, just strands in the ocean of story, as uh, Salman Rushdie refers to it? Mm-hmm. And so, so I think you know we we always have this tendency. I find myself sometimes saying, "Oh, in, in the original," but of course, you know, they're just different versions. They sprang up. You can find Little Red Riding Hood in 17th century China. There's a, a version. The girl doesn't have a red riding hood, but but she behaves very much like the girl in the woods. Right. And uh, and so I I just I am deeply committed to the idea of are creating our own versions of this of these stories. That is, if you're not comfortable with Gretel getting behind the witch and pushing her into the oven, tell it in a different way or rewrite it or, you know, look at another cultural production that takes the story in a different direction. Even though I love the idea of Gretel as the trickster who <laughs> triumphs. <laughs> and Anne Sexton described her as, as seeing her moment in history and and being, I, I love the fastest Houdini. She's something of an escape artist. And, and when poor Hansel has been imprisoned, He's sort of taken the lead up until the point that he's put into that terrible cage. And then she, who's always sort of been behind him, is behind the witch and pushes her, mm. as a good trickster would do, into the oven by, by telling her, you know, I don't know how to get in there. Can you, can you show me how? Right, right. So um, it's, a, it's a great story. But, but, but so here's something that in- intrigues me about that. Um, it's not that there aren't violent stories in the in religious canons in the Bible, for example. I mean, there certainly are, but there is an intentionality of of kind of, of moral of, of of moral reasoning and and a role modeling and and the the fairy tales are very different. And I, so even as you say, you know, the the hero there's there's very little pure morality and in fact there's a lot of brutality and and even when there's a happy ending for the uh for the good guys and good girls uh often i mean terrible things happen to the villains um and i i guess what one thing i'm curious about is as, as you've kind of spent your life steeped in this what's your sense of of why as human beings we need we need and use both of these kinds of stories um to understand oh, yeah, ourselves but... and make our way through the world that's a great question. And, and let me just start with the, the violence in fairy tales, which you're absolutely right. It's often surreal. 
it's burlesque. Yeah. It's carnivalesque. It makes no sense. And, uh, and, and I do that, but it gets us talking. It gets us trying to figure out, you know, how do, how do we make sense of the story? How do we put the pieces together? And I sort of take these stories back to the fireside when human beings, uh, for better or for worse, got together and cooperated and collaborated. And it was then that uh, the social conquest of Earth by human beings was was enabled, as E.O. Wilson tells us in his wonderful book of that title. Uh, we, you know, reached the top of the food chain because we were able to exchange information, pass along wisdom, uh, stories about predators in the wall in the woods and how to get away from right. them, and uh, and so there's. There is a certain kind of wisdom encapsulated in the tale. But for centuries, I think we've made the mistake of trying to pin a single message or moral on the story. Right. It simplifies it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Charles Perrault did this in France. He ended each story with with a moral. Uh, William Bennett did this in the Book of Virtues, published in the eight. You know, I I think he actually put the moral up front and center. And the beauty of these stories is that, you know, they don't have a single message or moral. And and how do we? draw the wisdom out of the story, it gives us an opportunity to talk about scary things, mm. about cultural contradictions, you know, innocence and seduction, monstrosity and compassion, uh, alterity, the other, who is the, you know, now we're taming the monsters, we're making friends with them, uh, instead of you know, defeating them and chopping off their heads and that <laughs> right. kind of thing. So these stories change in wonderfully productive ways, and and they do get us get us talking about our values. About you know, they help us develop a kind of moral compass. Um, I mean, one of the interesting one of the details that I've learned from you is so all the twists and turns, as you said, in different cultures with stories we know. So, for example, a story that many of us know so well would be Cinderella. And there's wide variation, especially in terms of what happens to the stepsisters. And in some cultures, it's incredibly violent, brutal death (laughs) and torture, real torture. Right. Right. Uh, putting those stepsisters to death, or as the the Grimms have, first the, they cut their toes off and heels off so that the shoe will fit, mm. and and the stepmother is quite happy to have them do. In, in fact, she encourages them to do that, and then they walk to church to Cinderella's wedding, and doves peck out the right eye, and as they're walking out. Doves come and peck out the left eye mm. of the of the stepsisters, so I mean it doesn't get worse than that. Uh, well, I guess it, I guess there, there are versions where it does get worse. There's an Indonesian version where Cinderella sends her stepsister to her stepmother in a little package, which is salt meat. Mm. Her stepsister has been chopped up into small pieces, and you know we get this. Uh, cannibalistic moment in the in the so that that is mythical for sure. So uh, so there, but then we have the French version where Cinderella forgives the sisters and helps them get mar- arranges marriages uh, for them. Yeah, and I think there's when I remember, what I remember growing up in the '60s, '70s was the Leslie Ann Warren movie, Cinderella movie, which was just all sweet and light. <laughs> and and then, but then you you know you got me thinking about well, Pretty Woman is another way you say that's an example of it. The, the Julia Roberts movie um, is a, is a is a Cinderella story. Um, oh, that's a, that's a great one, and I love the fact that Richard Gere gives her a credit card, so he becomes the fairy godmother. At the, <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the the stepsisters appear. Do you remember that moment when she goes shopping? Yes. Uh, and the the women in the store are very snobbish and send her away. Right. Oh. And then she comes back with the credit card and tells them what a big mistake they made. So there are all sorts of great allusions to the story, not just at the end where she tells Richard Gere that um, – 
she's is it she I've rescued you now? <laughs> yes, I do. Now that line I remember. He's he's what is it? At the end she says she rescued him, and what happens next? And she says he res- she rescued him back. She rescued him back. Post yeah, yeah. post women's <laughs> movement <laughs> Cinderella. And he arrives in his limo. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, but then I started thinking about um, uh, these aren't these aren't so much Cinderella images, but certainly fairy tale like creatures in television again in those. 60s, you know, I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched, which, you know, magical women, but completely domesticated, like magic, which had put its power away um, to be good. Uh, and then you, oh. you know, to, and then to take that into you also, I mean, you also then fast forward to today, look at the Kardashians or reality TV makeovers, um, as other ways that we work with some of these I- I images of women that are so primordial. It's really interesting. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the makeover movie or or reality show. We're fascinated by that. You know, and, and there I'd, there's Hans Christian Andersen's Ugly Duckling, which is right. <laughs> such a wonderful childhood story because, you know, you may be the ugly duckling, but you'll turn into a, a swan one day. And that's the ultimate story of hope and redemption and happily ever after. And and the Kardashians you pointed out is and this is, I, I I do want to say this is not something I watch but I hear about it from my children, um, the, the 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 tension between the mother and the daughters that there's that classic oh, dynamic oh, absolutely it's yeah, almost they, like the, Cinderella's stepmother <clears throat> competing yeah. with her. First of all, the hyper dysfunctional family, which is you know every fairy tale family is like that. They're <laughs> we didn't all, invent all this, did we? In modernity, no. no and then I, I do watch the Kardashians. I, my, uh, I, I will confess, I, I've stopped, but I used to watch it on my exercise bike. And there's this one moment where you know, of course, the the mother Chris is a cougar, and think of Snow White and the Huntsman, where yeah, yeah. Charlize Theron isn't quite old enough to be a cougar, but it's all rivalry between mother-daughter and, uh, you know, who is the fairest of them all. There's a moment in Keeping Up with the Kardashians where where Chris sees her daughters, I think, in bikinis. They're on the beach, and she's got, you know, some sort of robe. She's completely covered up. And then they show images, you know, her mind is at work of her when she was younger mm-hmm. and able mm-hmm. to wear bikinis. And this you know, you feel this. She really deeply resents her. Mirror, daughters. mirror on the wall. Who's <laughs> and, the fairest of and them then all? <laughs> suddenly, yeah, you see. I mean, these fairy tales do. Uh, they are part of our reality. And uh, I mean, thinking, speaking of pop culture, I uh, saw Django Unchained a couple of weeks ago and was astonished by the fact that even Quentin Tarantino is on two fairy tales with uh, in that film. There is uh, uh, an African-American woman, a slave, owned by Germans who have a plantation in the South, who name her Brunhilde. She's called Brunhilde. But Brunhilde is the first sleeping beauty. She's surrounded by a ring of fire, and uh, Wotan has said, you know, she Mm. will, she now must, this warrior girl must marry, and... And uh, she will be woken by a kiss uh, from a man who knows no fear. And Django is the one who rescues Brumhilda. And there's so many allusions to Sleeping Beauty in that film. Are you watching, uh, I am, this resurgence of really overt fairy tale in TV, in quite good TV now, this show Once Upon a Time which, yes, uh, I follow Once Upon a Time yes, and, Grimm, and Grimm, the crime series. Yeah, and I even think um, True Blood, I don't know if you've watched that. Has oh, full a, of fairy Full tale of moments. it, yes. Yeah. And the yeah. longer it goes on, the more it is about, it, it picks up so many more of those themes. It's not just about vampires anymore. 
Right. And the, and once you start looking, I mean, even I think this started almost with Sex in the City. We <laughs> had so many. You know, it was just littered. Is with that fairy Cinderella? Tale what, well, tell me that. What's, oh, what's the fairy tale oh, in Sex Ca- in the City? Uh, you know, I uh, the Carrie loses her shoe at one point, uh, and, and <laughs> the fact that it's so much about. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Right. The shoe theme. And then they're always referring to happily ever after yeah. and, uh, and fairy tales and 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 all of that. So so I, I think that um, these tales are constantly recycled in explicit ways. But almost every narrative kind of alludes to or, or a, a fairy tale or a fairy tale motif will flash out at you from a story. There is something just primal about these tales. But I just, it, it, it seems to me that, that there might be something, that, that in general, and I, I've thought about this a lot in different ways over the last few years, that, that television is becoming this newly, really robust and, and sophisticated place where we are t- storytelling. Um, For sure. Right? Yeah. And, and, and some, of these, some of these shows we've mentioned... Um, you know, in some ways, this represents a, a reversal of the move that the Grimm's made, that, that somehow in the 21st century, um, really great writers and thinkers are finding ways to bring these stories back, to make them adult stories again. Oh, to, yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, we, I, I describe them as being part of an oral storytelling culture for adults. But if you look at some of the scenes of storytelling from the 17th, 18th, 19th century, you see that the audience was really Mm multi-generational. And that, you know, kids would be there. A lot of the stuff would go over their heads, but they were still, you know, getting the story, getting getting parts of it. So I think we are back. Uh, Part of what happened, I think, is that Disney took over the film. Disney became our portal to fairy right, tales, right. to the fairy tale world. So I think there was a sense uh, that they were, you know, really just for kids. They were cartoonish. And, you know, I applaud the fact that Disney kept those stories alive uh, and then, you know, had these unbelievably riveting uh demonic women in in the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the Wicked Queen in Snow White is just sensational. She goes down to yeah. that great underground lair with those books, dusty tomes, right. and ravens and skulls. She, she was the source of deep fascination for me when I saw the film, whereas Snow White seemed utterly insipid uh, to me even <laughs> yes. as, a, as a, and you look at her today she's visually uninteresting right, right. Uh, but so I, I think that you know for about 50 years Disney had pretty much a monopoly on the stories and I think it's just great that today they've made a comeback and I think uh, we're recognizing that these stories are not just the domain of childhood they were part of the childhood of culture really they belong to mm. everybody mm-hmm. and that you know we can we can sort of reclaim them play with them and and we don't necessarily have to rewrite them but we can we can be inspired by maybe just a plot twist or a motif or some small element in a story do do you have a sense of of what it might be in our culture right now that um, <clears throat> that makes these these old motifs seem more uh, relevant again, more worth pondering and playing with. Oh yeah, that's an interesting question because you could say you know everyone always believes that they are living in an era of transition, of yeah. crisis, and all of that. But you know, I think that we are there. There is. I don't know whether to describe it as a crisis, but an inflection point that is quite extraordinary, you know, with the Internet, with all of the challenges that that is in, the great upside to that with, you know, offering more access. But the downside, which is that, you know, no one knows how to monetize this and, mm-hmm. you know, all these all – these, 
publishing industry is in crisis. The well, music all of our, industry, all of our industries and industry. institutions yeah, right. are being turned inside out. Exactly. By mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I think that there is a kind of move to, you know, go back uh, to sort of try to. Uh, reinvent ourselves using the old in a way, but in a, in a way that is more self-conscious than usual. So I'm still trying to figure it all out. I think we're all just navigating new territory. Yeah. And there is a sort of comfort in the old in bringing back the familiar uh, in a new way, to be sure, but relying on it to help us navigate the future. These stories, after all, were used to help us make sense of the world. And for that reason, I think we need them more than ever. Here's a, you have a great sentence somewhere. He wrote, There's, there is transformative power in terror as life has lately taught us, and we count on stories to keep us from forgetting that. That, that to me, f- feels like it speaks very directly to, to this, these early years of our century. Oh yeah, for sure, and and we have to face down those demons and figure out what they what they are, uh, both the demons within and without, and and I think the stories provide a platform for doing that. This this idea also that, um, you know, I, I I do think, I think on the surface um, maybe, the brutality that runs throughout these stories might be kind of puzzling. Um, A couple of things you point out I find very helpful. I mean, one is that that fantasy removed from reality, whereas you said it's sometimes burlesque. I mean, it's so extreme that it's unbelievable. But that 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 creates a place to work on fear, in in a way, a safe place to work on fear. And and also that, um, in fact, children... Uh, as well as adults, actually know what to do with violence, um, not, oh, to, yes. not to be overwhelmed by the violence in the stories. Right. Well, there's the great once upon a time, uh, which is a marker. It says, this is not the here and now. Huh. Oh, interesting. Uh, you can let your imagination run wild. You can go in places that you'd be scared to go otherwise. You can say things that you're afraid to you know, to talk about. And I, I love the fact that Mallorcan storytellers begin their tales with it was and it was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort mm-hmm. of split reference. Right. That is, uh, it, this, is, this isn't real, but there's something about it that I always think of Harry Potter in this context, Harry Potter and Dumbledore talking. And Dumbledore says, uh, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. So um, there's something about, you know, you're moving back and forth, but it's a safe space. Once upon a time is a safe space for all of us Mm -hmm. and especially for children who might not have the words to talk about, abstract words or words that, you know, capture feelings, but who understand a story and will be drawn into a story. And again, you know, as I said, they get us... the, I hate to sound like a broken record, but they get us to talk about things. And, you know, in, in just mysterious ways, you come to an understanding or a resolution. Now, not a resolution, I should say, because you have to, you have to keep working through things. You, you, um, you can kind of inhabit that, <laughs> that, those questions or those, that fear. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. Um, and, you know, I wonder also how much of a connection you see between this <clears throat> dynamic and, and another phenomenon of our time. Maybe this has always been true, but just the wild popularity of murder mysteries and suspense. And again, a lot of that is being written very well these days. There are, there are really brilliant people um, I mostly read British uh, mystery authors, and, you know, it's great. It, it's, it's, it's great literature, some of it. Um, but it is about people killing each other and, and being pathological. Um, I don't oh, know. Yes. What, for, what's the connection for you with that phenomenon and this? And why is pathology riveting? And, and oh, how can it possibly it? not be bad for us to, <laughs> to consume so much of this? 
to, you know, I'm reading Neil Gaiman's American Gods and uh-huh. just, you know, I can't put it down. I hate, I hate having to put it down, but I'm a, I don't know how to categorize that. It's sort of fantasy and magical realism. But I think what it is is it, what makes it so riveting is there's so many mysterious things happening. Yeah. And that's what all great literature does. It, it just presents these puzzles and riddles and what is this you know it confronts us with things that you know we can't explain but the words will help us to to figure things out so i I always use this word in class of hermeneutic puzzles that is uh we become hermeneutes trying to make sense of the world interpreters is that what i mean yeah interpreters yeah yeah. Yeah. and and it makes us wiser and this is why harry potter is so great because kids are always having to solve puzzles and figure things out you've got there's an intellectual challenge in this stuff yeah, uh-huh. uh, Voldemort is called Tom Riddle, yeah. and you know it is. Uh, kids are constantly faced with these riddles, and and so you know this is why we get lost in books and absorbed. And uh, Tom, uh, Tim Wynn Jones has this great line about the immersive reading experience, where you are in this world, you breathe differently, you're kind of underwater, and not only do you learn a lot about that new world, but you discover how your own mind works. And so ultimately, you you learn about yourself. This is a great lesson of the anthropologist Levi Strauss, too, that ultimately these stories help us figure out how our brains are wired. Mm, interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, because what is that line you said that, you know, what is it, that it trips pathology and, and violence trips things in our brain. And, you know, you may have written that even 10 years ago before we knew now how absolutely true that is, uh, that things light up in our brains and that that, that being riveted is real, it's physiologically real. Right. And it's great that you use that term, lights up. Something lights up in our brain yeah. because, uh, you know, there's Baldwin who tells us that stories are the only light we've got in the darkness. Uh. And and there is, you know, I mean, just going back to the beauty and horror that we started with, there may be that darkness and terror, but there's always in stories there, you know, I, I guess in Kafka there may not be, but. Gregory Sums and never gets turned back. Uh, uh, he remains a cockroach. But, but, you know, there is this light and hope and uh, this beauty and sparkle and glitter and dazzle, uh, the hope of redemption. And and there's, there's something a little bit interesting to me, too, in that... Um, we are riveted by all the drama, including the the murder, the the pathology, the darkness. I notice in myself, and I think this is a pretty common experience, um, though that that at some remove from these stories, and, and Harry Potter is another example of this, um, and certainly these fairy tales. What you remember, I mean, your 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 primary sense of of what of those stories is something quite lovely and magical in a good way. I mean, I remember I've heard other parents talking about this. I remember taking my kids to see the Star Wars movies when they were really little, and I mean, right. Wars is in the title, <laughs> but yeah. I didn't remember. Conflict, yes. I mean, but it's it's incredibly it's it's war. I mean, it starts out with all these really scary soldiers and. It's incredibly menacing and violent, and I had completely forgotten that. What I remembered was Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, do, you, do you know what I'm saying? Is, is that true of a lot of people, too? Oh, that, um, yeah, you're, I, I'm so fascinated by the question of what do we take from our childhood stories and bring into our adult lives? And at one point, I asked many of my students what what books from childhood they had brought with them to Harvard and, and why. And what I was struck by was that often uh, these students didn't really remember much about the story, but there was something in the story, some little talisman, some, some moment, a sentence, uh, something a character does, a detail in a picture sometimes that they'd bonded with. 
it was almost like a little souvenir of the tale that they then carried with them into adult life. And, you know, when they would think of that, everything would light. We talked about brains lighting mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was and some deep connection with with your childhood. And trying to figure that out was always such an interesting exercise because inevitably a story grew out of that souvenir. Hmm. Not necessarily the story from childhood, hmm. but, but a new, a new t- their own story. And so, you know, again, it became a kind of platform for, for figuring things out uh, in their own lives, in their own daily lives. I remember interviewing Robert Coles years ago, you know, the great child psychiatrist, oh, and wow. him saying, we are the storytelling creatures, and, and the children seek out stories, and, and, they know, and they know what to do with them. And that's what you just said is a, is a great oh, example sure. of that. Yeah. You know, Steven Pinker tells us about the language. He has this great book called The Language Instinct. And, and I think that, you know, there is a book on the... Ev- evolution of stories too but there is a storytelling instinct that is you know we from the get-go we need to we need to communicate to tell things to try to make sense of of what has what has happened and to make things up uh vladimir nabokov tells us that uh what is it fairy tales were born on the day when a boy came home crying wolf (laughs) and there was no wolf so you know it's not just that we work through reality, but we make things up and and tell them to other people. I mean, just following on some of the things we've been talking about also in terms of popular culture, um, I, I also do see some very gritty ways right now, um, specific to our time, I think. Um, you know, television like The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or the Hunger Games you've talked about. There's right there's there's also this genre that there where there's a where there's a really intense existential fear and it and it and, and and one of the themes in a lot of these is everything that we think has civilized us is taken away, right? And that we are brutalized. Um, right, right. And right. uh but I, I I've read you feeling concerned also about some of that going to new extremes that might not be good for us. You know, it's I don't like to be the one preaching a sermon. Uh, <laughs> as I told you about my childhood experience. So I'm always reluctant to sort of be judgmental. But I must admit that Breaking Bad was my breaking point. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, there, there's some, I remember just seeing, I, I won't even describe it, but I thought, okay, that's just too much for me. Yeah, I feel I, that I way I have too. to turn that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Hunger Games, I, I was startled by, because to me, the idea of a book about children killing children was just going to an extreme, it was violating a cultural taboo in a way that, uh, was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there I read the book and I watched the movie and I thought they were sensational and really fascinating. This, you know, And I, I didn't, even though it had crossed a line, Suzanne Collins somehow seemed to have done it in a way that made sense for me, that, you know, th- there seemed to be a real point to that. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not the one who is looking for for a lesson, but you know, we do have a new culture, uh, uh, right? You know, where there's a lot more is per- permitted. We don't protect our children as much as we once did, and and I guess you know, I do worry that you know, children today, you know, they can see anything. Yeah, they and they, they don't. Can, they know yeah. they're not protected, right? That's right. right <laughs> I right. mean, you, here's and, something you wrote: the savagery we offer children today is more unforgiving than it once was, and the shadows are rarely banished by comic relief. Instead of stories about children who struggle to grow up, we have stories about children who struggle to survive. But I, I think that's a reality. People, even children, are aware of. It, it, it is, and and I have to say that the minute you go into the protectionist mode mm-hmm. and you say you know we need to we need to draw a line and and it shouldn't be anything goes 
you just get a lot of blowback from people who say, oh, you know, you don't give children enough credit. Yeah. Uh, they are they're able to navigate this. And, and also we live in a violent world and therefore children should be – should know that. And and all of that, but but some I think we haven't been very thoughtful about yeah. figuring out, you know, where is that line? Where do we draw it? Um, what, you know, what can what responsibilities do we have as as adults? But as I say, I always feel uncomfortable, and and maybe that's why we're not talking about it because it makes us uncomfortable to be the censors or the editors or the the ones who are saying oh no no oh, no that's too much you know i remember when my son who's now 14 i think he was probably 12 or 13 when he was reading hunger games and um really just inhaling it and uh and i asked him what it was about i mean i'd heard other people tell me what it was about and I, and the first word that came out of his mouth is it's about poverty you know, that's, oh, that's not the word other people. Yeah. It was. I mean, it wasn't yeah, about. It, yeah. I mean, it was about children struggling. But the, the and, and I. So I. I mean, I was really impressed. <laughs> impressed with that answer, and thought if this book has him thinking about poverty, well, okay. I mean, I. I you know. <laughs> oh yeah, because uh, Katniss is. Uh, remember, the book starts out. She's skin and bones. Yeah. And she's you know she's living in Panem. Uh, Bread, the country of bread, uh, where there is no food, and yeah. and she, you know, she becomes this extraordinary trickster figure, yeah. uh, who has to survive in a time of famine and use her wits. Um, I want to tell you too that when I I was telling my son that I'm interviewing someone who's an expert on fairy tales because he saw all those these books on the kitchen table, and he, uh, he said. How does that happen? He's like, I think he was really intrigued by this as a job path. <laughs> and and <I> know. <laughs> admiring. Uh, sometimes I you know, I, I sometimes I feel a little bit like a fraudster, but you know, there's so many people who cannot believe that Harvard has a professor who talks about who gives courses on fairy tales. And I you know, I think that we we need to explore these stories. They are everywhere. Mm-hmm. We need to think about them, you know, and try to try to figure out uh, how they how they uh, become part of us, part of our our lives. And they're they're so rich and fascinating in all their cultural variation. I, I always tell my students that in order to study fairy tales, they have to become polymaths. Mm. That is, mm. uh, study not not just anthropology and literary criticism, but also psychology, evolutionary yeah. psychology. Yeah. So there's so many different paths into the fairy tale that it becomes an exercise in interdisciplinarity for them. Mm. Do you um, Do you know that in... You've talked a lot about how the Red Riding Hood story has so much variation. And did you know that in the in the Once Upon a Time show now, Red Riding Hood, the wolf is actually inside her. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, <laughs> that, I think, is one of the best episodes in the right. entire Such series. Such an American, yeah. you know, yeah. in our very psychologized <clears throat> age. Oh, and all these role reversals now. Yes. Uh, there's Hannah and Freeway and Hard Candy, where Little Red Riding Hood is the predator. She is, she slays yeah. the, and she doesn't need a hunter to help her out. Yeah. Uh, so just as we kind of, as we kind of um, draw to a close these last 15 or 20 minutes, I mean, let's talk about, you know, as you mentioned, what would that look like to become more intentional more curious in the first instance and more intentional about understanding how these things shape us. And one thing I think you've written about very interestingly is, you know, you were already a scholar of these things and then you had your own children um, and you wrote about the under, about this realization that the contact zone formed by bedtime reading was more complex and vexed than I had imagined. What, what did that add? What does that add to your understanding of all this? Oh, I, well, I think first there was the the shock of discovering that these stories were not so culturally innocent, but then the realization that you know there's this wonderful opportunity. We, we were just talking about you know 
our responsibilities as adults. There's this wonderful opportunity at nighttime, you know, when things have settled down, when it's quiet, to tell these stories and, you know, to go back to our own childhoods in a way. I I was always finding myself, you know, just remembering. uh, Oh, it was as if these, you know, connections were being made in my brain, remembering these stories and the impact they had had on me. So there's this nostalgic element to it, uh, along with the educational and psychological bonding and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then children use these stories to move forward, to learn more about the world, to become adult. They're being educated. So so there you are, you know, together. Uh, and And having the opportunity sometimes just to read the words on the page and, you know, have this great experience together of the beauty of, of the language. Right. Uh, but then sometimes, you know, just to stop and explain things, improvise. It's almost like it becomes a hypertext where, you know, you click on a word. And <laughs> <laughs> you click and the two of you talk about this or uh, however many there. You don't, doesn't, you, can, you don't have to have two. You can have two parents there. Mm. And, um, uh, and and then, you know, to move along with the story, to improvise at times and to create your own story, to laugh about it, to worry about it, to provide comfort. And uh, it's just, you know, I look back on it and I, I think it was, you know, a formative experience for my children and then just a... You know, intoxicating. Mm. Not always. Though. I mean, I admit that there were times when I I wanted the one minute bedtime story. Yeah, and it was like again, again, <laughs> you know? again. Okay. No, I'm yeah. exhausted. <laughs> and then the fact that yeah, that the, the story it's not bedtime. It doesn't yeah. put the children to sleep. It often wakes them up, <laughs> right. and they get a second wind. So, but that's great too. I think. I remember um, when my children were little. They would always ask me to tell them stories about my own life, and I wasn't very good at that. Uh, I don't. I, I. I'm not somebody who has a lot of happy stories about my childhood. Um, and then, and then, as they got a little bit older, and I kind of got a little bit older as a parent, I did start telling them stories from my life. They weren't necessarily from my childhood. And I remember my daughter turning to me right. once and saying, "All those times we asked you to tell us stories, and you <laughs> said remembered. you didn't have any, and you have great oh. stories." Um, but that, oh, I don't this know. Just, just this completely parallels my own experience because <sighs> I, you know, I don't have that kind of energy and imagination. Too, I, I relied on the great storytellers. <laughs> Yeah. But but often my my daughter in particular wanted to know about my own child, and I wish now that I just sort of uh, made things up to you know <laughs> yes. told about my childhood, but made stuff. I, I have a, a colleague who tells me that he he walks his son to school. And he tells him stories, mm-hmm. which are a kind of, you know, he conflates his own life with all kinds of zany things. And, and you know, the beauty of that experience, you know, he will never forget that. And uh, so I, I guess, you know, I hope adults are encouraged to kind of tell their own stories. And You know, uh, but I think for me, the realization when I was older and they were older is I... I didn't just try to tell them sweet stories. You know, I had felt like I had to come up with neat packages of stories that had happy endings. And and it was complicated stories I told them or stories about being in some strange situation or, you know, or some jam I got out of or some adventure oh, yeah. I took that I couldn't yeah. tie up. And in fact, it's just like we were talking about a minute ago. They they know what to do with that. And in fact, maybe that was more helpful to them than if I told them a, a sweet fairy tale. I mean... Fairy tales aren't all like that either, right? <laughs> That's right. And then sometimes you know, your own life seems just too banal yeah, for them. Right. It doesn't, you know, you, you've got all these great books there and all these great storytellers. So it, it feels humbling mm-hmm. and you think, oh, I couldn't possibly do anything like that. But I, I think parents really, really can. Yeah. What I think... I think at this point in my life, the thing that I'm most suspicious about may be what's most comforting, the happily ever after. You know, hello? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry, I almost felt yeah. like the, the yeah. happily ever after. Uh, I, I, I don't know what... It seems in some ways to me like such a strange way to end stories which are often just full of how dark and hard and complex and bizarre life can be and and even magnified. And it's not even necessarily, maybe this is me being part of the Hunger Games culture. I don't even know if it's... I don't know if it, I don't I don't I don't want to teach my children that everything ends happily ever after. I don't know. Am I am I, t- am I being too serious about this? Oh well, no. I you know I, C.S. Lewis told us about what is it the beating of the heart when he hears the happy happily ever after, yeah. and I suppose you know not all of our stories need to end that way. There you know there can be a mix of things. For the very young I think it's just a great way to end a story right. because it you know as human beings we just need hope. We need to know yes things can take a, a better turn. And I don't think you know that utopian moment in the story I, I don't think it's wrong because there's so many terrible things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's so much misfortune that you have to, in order to keep going, in order to combat that, you have to know that there is, there is the things will turn out all right. Even though we know, of course, that you know, as Lily Tomlin tells us, we're all in this together, and none of us is getting out of it alive. Right. <laughs> which is precisely why, why I think we need uh, to know. Yes, it is worth going on because uh, there are people who will come after you, and and so uh, so we need we need to know that uh, if we. If we're courageous, if we use our wits, if we try to do the th- the right thing, it will turn out all right. Hmm. It'll Even turn. if it's just the short run. Exactly. It'll turn out all yeah. right, and then it will start all over again. <laughs> and I then mean, it'll get bad again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that you, um, you've written that's helpful to me in this context is, um, you know, first of all, just noting, which something has come up in other conversations I've had over the years, reading is... You know, and it's, reading is work that hones a moral sense. Even you know, whatever you're reading about, that it actually asks you to put your to be curious and get out of your own experience and understand other people and explore fictional worlds. And in that sense, as you said, you know, start to develop a moral compass. And and you also have suggested that when when we're reading to children, we don't we can have a conversational reading experience, and we don't have to let it end at that happily ever after. That you can muse on that end. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the great psychological gains really is that through fiction, and here we're, I'm talking about older child readers, mm-hmm. you're, uh, uh, you have the possibility of reading somebody else's mind. Uh, you know, you can't do that in real life. You can only guess right. or speculate. Right. But suddenly in fiction, you know what they're thinking. You know what they're feeling. And, and I don't think you're necessarily identifying with the character, but just, you know, you're you're witnessing what mm-hmm. goes on in somebody else's mind. What are they going to do next? What are they going to do now? And so, you know, you begin to understand how people react. But I think you can also develop a kind of, kind of empathetic capacities. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, you're inside somebody else's skin. You know how it feels to be someone else. And that kind of conversational storytelling, in a way, in a sense, is a version of being back around the fire where all of these fairy tales started with people batting these stories around, right? Yeah. And, And also, you'd never know uh, how the story is going to land. When you had those fire science scenes, my bet is somebody told a story and then there was protest. <laughs> you know, that's not how it should right. end. Or agreement or, or or somebody said, I'm going to end this a little bit differently. So, you know, we bring our own sensibilities to these stories and, and that's where the great conversation. It's just sort of, it's like going to see a great movie. You know, what happens, the you know, the movie ends, uh, the lights go on, everybody's silent yeah. for 
a few minutes as they exit, and then suddenly you hear the conversations. Uh, everyone starts talking. And, you know, you have to digest that story. And, uh, you know, there's nothing worse. No one wants to go to the movies alone because then there's no right. one to talk to about right. it. And in those conversations, the story keeps rolling. It starts rolling around keeps, in the world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You... Um, I had not made the connection between <clears throat> storytelling by the fire and Kindle as a name for our new reading device, one of our new reading devices. But Isn't you, that wonderful? Well, I hadn't thought about it. Is, is, is that what they meant in naming it Kindle? I, I think – I don't know whether they did this uh, deliberately or, or whether it was just the subconscious at work. Uh, but the fact that when they called it Kindle, I was already astonished. But then when the new version is Kindle Fire, and my Kindle came in a box with the words Once Upon a Time on mm. the side. Mm. I'm told that the new ones don't come in that box. But there, there was even some fairy dust. I, granted, it was a cardboard box and it wasn't glitter. <laughs> but but there was you know there were some little sparkly elements there on the once upon a time, so new media is always recycling old media in in that fascinating way, and I I think it's just a testament to the fact that you know we may we may have new delivery systems as the uh, media gurus tell us, but. Uh, but you know, there's still the stories are still there, and they're not going to go away. We may lose the codex. Uh, the the the. I hope we never lose the the, the book. is such a wonderful invention, and mm. it's it's uh, great in so many ways. But uh, the stories will not disappear. Mm. Well, I just think this has been delightful. Is there anything else you would want to? Mention, talk about, describe, and there's. I had pages and pages of notes, and there's. So. Oh gosh, we've we've covered so much ground, yeah. and I, I may I, I may have reached that rare moment when I've talked out. <laughs> no, no, it's a long it's a long conversation. So what we'll do with this is it's but it's been just great. What we do is we will actually put the unedited interview up, and a lot of people listen to those uh, counterculturally, right? We think we can only take things in bite-sized pieces but um and then we but we'll produce the show f- for an hour and i think we'll try to get some sound in maybe from some of these stories oh, or some of these tv so we'll, we'll have a lot of great, fun producing great, great. it and we'll be in touch and let you know and give you all the details when that's happening <clears throat> and i just so okay. appreciate you making this time terrific it was uh, thank you for those great questions yeah, well, I had a lot of fun. And, and for the time and um you know this isn't 10 minutes or something no like that. and we'll yeah. we'll give it its due yeah, people will love it. Great. Yeah, thank you. Take bye- care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.